You're listening to the Editorial Intelligence special broadcast from the Names Not Numbers Symposium. More information on namesnotnumbers.com. Good morning, everyone. My name is Derek Wyatt. Uh, I like to say I'm a recovering politician. And um, I've got one little story that sort of segues here. Um, you know, I'm quite friendly with journalists, and we're both having quite a bad time, really. And one of my closest friends is a lady called Christina Lamb. Christina Lamb is the, foreign, is the Washington correspondent of the Sunday Times, but has spent most of her life either with the Sunday Telegraph in Cape Town or actually in Kabul, mainly because she speaks quite a lot of local languages, which is unusual uh, in Afghanistan. And she wrote me a note from Afghanistan to say, have you any idea what the government's doing in Kabul? Well, as though I would know what my government was doing in Kabul. And so I said, no. She said, well, you're doing women's rights. I said, this is 205, 206. I said, we're doing women's rights. Yes, you're spending sort of $50 million doing this. I said, I, I don't believe this. I said, what are the Americans doing? She said, they're repairing water and putting electricity and rebuilding the schools. And unusually, un they're more popular than us currently in Kabul. And so I said, Christina, this is nuts. Um, Listen, let me, let me write to the Prime Minister and let me write to the Foreign Secretary. So I wrote to Tony Blair and I wrote to Margaret Beckett the same letter except for the little thing at the top, dear Tone, dear Margaret. And within 24 hours, number 10 rang and said, Tony wants to see Christina. Could she come in on Wednesday after Prime Minister's question time? So, uh, so that's how quick it was. And luckily Christina was in town. And so just after Prime Minister's question time, just behind where the speaker sits, the Prime Minister has his own private room. And so we waited rather nervously to go in, which is a bit like going to headmaster's study. And we went in, and uh, there was just his uh, Middle East advisor, his private Middle East advisor, no one else. And we sat down, and for 20 minutes, Christina told Tony what actually was going on in Kabul. And at the end of the 20 minutes, uh, the Prime Minister said, uh, Derek, I wonder if you could show her out but could you come back in, but not in a nice, friendly way, in a sort of, why did you bother me with this woman way? And so I went out with Christina, and I said, look, I've got to go back in. I, I don't quite know why. So I don't know whether it was the, the end of the beginning of my political career or whatever it was, but I took her out, and I went back in, and he said, sit down. And I did then think, this is the headmaster's study. And I was then, my bubble all the way was, what is he going to say? What is he going to tell me? And he said, I've got one thing to tell you, Derek. What a bloody good-looking bird she is. <laughs> now, now, did I think that? No, I did not. Anyway, and now to Sarah. <laughs> Come on, Sarah. <laughs> yes, well, I don't really know what to say. Um, so I shall go, I shall go right... Right, to the, the meat of things. I was actually uh, inspired uh, yesterday by Steph's uh, registered trademark of, of the cradle to cradle. So I thought I would uh, trademark the American dream because it's a terribly original phrase and I thought maybe uh, I, I could uh, make some money on it. And as, as we were just told, uh, commerce is everything. As many of you have heard, because I tend to go on about it at length, I'm writing a book about The Great Gatsby, uh, which many people st will assume is the great American treatise on the question of the American dream and indeed of its lasting impact. But I don't think you can measure an idea's lasting impact unless you can define its origins. 
And in the case of the American dream, its beginnings are very different from what most people imagine. At least I'm hoping that you don't know this, otherwise my whole talk is blown. So what I found is that in the years that The Great Gatsby covers, which is namely 1918 to 1923, something like the modern world is born. The Roaring Twenties trumpeted the birth of modern America. Its language, to a startling extent, describes our world. The words that were first coined in English between 1918 and 1923 read like a jazz age prophecy of the century to come. And I could tell an entire story about the history of the American dream just using these words. Multipurpose. Sorry, I'm losing my, uh, my cursor here. Multipurpose, cool, uh, as a measure of value, not thermometrics. Motherfucker, wimp, cuckoo, oops, goofy, yippee, cartwheel, D-Day, encode, hypermodern, existentialism, columnist, Steve Richards, you were invented in 1920. Collage, bozo, cartwheel, oh, sorry, I did cartwheel twice, extrovert, slenderized, slinky, homosexually, post-feminist, biracial, racialized, race-baiter, race-baiting, to ace, French kiss, fucked off, sexiness, transvestite, gigolo, to proposition, to party, libidinal, psyching, tearjerker, fundamentalism, bagel, ad-lib, mock-up, prefab, fabricated, atom bomb, off the rack, food chain, comparison shopping, checkup, supersonic, ultrasonic, ultrasound, hitchhike, comfort zone, junkie, cold turkey, the one follows the other, and then a series of prohibition drinks, uh, the laws of unintended consequences in front of us, pina colada, Quantro. Uh, sorry, I'm having trouble with my thing here. Uh, James, Bacardi, Jameson Whiskey, Campari, Chinsano, Orange Blossom, Sidecar, Gin Ricky, Sparkly, Schlepp, Multi-Layered, Rebrands, Mass Market, Mass Media, Julia, those are for you. Broadcasting, Broadcaster, of course, the BBC is invented in 1922. Publicized, Feedback, Finalized, Lame, Bistro, Quantum Mechanics, uh, uh, Professor Reese, that's for you. Uh, polyester, Vacuum, Duplex, Rolex. Entrepreneurial, white collar, posh, upgrade, ritzy, dimwit, nobrow, Peter York, that's for you. Nouveau poor, we didn't invent that one either. Sophisticate, market research, devalue, cross-selling, inflationary, deflationary, they come together. Merchant bank, subprime, arbitrage, debunk, fascist, and fantasist. And in this side of paradise, in 1920, Scott Fitzgerald was also the first to record the words t-shirt, daiquiri, hipped. I'm hipped on Freud and all that and the use of wicked as a term of approbation. Phoebe and I are going to shake a wicked calf. The same period saw the emergence of another phrase. Oops, sorry, I'm skipping that one. The fashion and home magazines have prepared thousands of Americans for the possible rise of fortune that is the universal American dream and hope. The OED lists this quotation as the first recorded use of the phrase American dream. And in fact, as you can see, it's not yet the phrase as we use it, although that meaning is emerging. The American dream as a way of articulating American ideals of opportunity and success is first articulated in 1917, just as America is entering the Great War. And as of 1917, as this quotation shows, popular writers were already recognizing that consumerism and mass marketing were what was teaching Americans what they should want, and that what they should want was materialistic in an age that coined mass marketing and mass media. The American dream may be an old concept. America as a land of opportunity and potential is indeed embedded in the nation's founding documents, but the phrase is a new one. The Declaration of Independence enshrines in 1776 the pursuit of happiness, not the American dream. Alexis de Tocqueville in the 1830s talks about American opportunism, not the American dream. Abraham Lincoln in the Gettysburg Address talks about a land dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal, not the American dream. When Gatsby was published in April 1925, the phrase American dream to all intents and purposes as we use it did not exist. It had been used just half a dozen times or so in print before and never as a common generic shorthand for talking about the American experiment. 
After 1917, the next time it appears in print is in a column by the great critic Walter Lippmann, who I know Julia is a big fan of, who warned of the failure of the American dream in a column called Education and the White Collar Class. Fitzgerald read and admired Lippmann, so the chances of his having encountered this column are excellent. He also wrote for Vanity Fair and all his friends uh, edited it. But that would have just been in passing. At most, the phrase might have been echoing unconsciously at the back of his mind as he wrote his masterpiece about a man whose dreams are already in the past. He had come a long way to this blue lawn, and his dream must have seemed so close that he could hardly fail to grasp it. He did not know that it was already behind him, somewhere back in that vast obscurity beyond the city where the dark fields of the Republic rolled on under the night. That's, this is why I am talking about the past. Not just because, as Mark Walport said yesterday, the past is much easier to predict than the future, although that is certainly true, but because the American dream is always a story about the past. It's a story about what we haven't done, not what we will do. That's Fitzgerald's great genius, of course. He effectively invents the notion of the American dream as a dream in Gatsby and then points out that it's already behind us. A dream is not just a hope. It's a fantasy. A dream is that which is not reality. That's what the American dream is, not reality. It has never been reality. But although Fitzgerald used the word dream to talk about America as a land of opportunity, he doesn't use the phrase American dream either. And the important point here is that the phrase is certainly not part of popular discourse. Not until 1931, when a popular historian named James Truslow Adams uses it in a book called The Epic of America. Adams writes about the American dream of a better, richer, and happier life for all our citizens of every rank, which is the greatest contribution we have made to the thought and welfare of the world. That dream or hope has been present from the start. Ever since we became an independent nation, each generation has seen an uprising of ordinary Americans to save that dream from the forces that appear to be overwhelming it. At that point, the phrase takes off and becomes firmly embedded in American popular discourse. We cannot talk about the lasting impact of the American dream without realizing that as a popular phrase, it is only 81 years old. And most important, it is a phrase that emerges out of the Great Depression. It is a Depression-era idea. And what we denote by the phrase American dream is something not very much like dream and something much more like promise. But that meaning emerges from the Depression. The American dream, and again, this is Gadsby's point, is that a man, or maybe sometimes in remarkable circumstances a woman, would be judged by character and conduct rather than by condition. Americans would not be determined by the social or economic conditions that shaped them. That was the American dream. And that, of course, is precisely a dream and not a reality. Just ask the estimated 80% of young African-American men who are currently cycling through the prison system, or ask the Americans who lived through the Depression. The Wall Street crash in October 1929 shook to the core everyone's easy faith that America offered infinite opportunity and that merit would be rewarded. Instead, corruption was revealed on a mass scale, ordinary Americans were thrown out of work, while tycoons like, for example, Joseph Kennedy made a fortune in the Wall Street crash and some have argued helped cause it by short selling. I hope this is sounding familiar. The American dream as a phrase is invented to describe a failure, the forces that are overwhelming it, recognizing that the dream has proven a fantasy that the nation has not been able to realize. If America is a land of promise, then it must also be a land of failure. You cannot be a society preoccupied by success and not also be preoccupied by failure. It is when the dream is fading, growing thin and threatening to vanish altogether, that the nation begins to name it as the lost paradise, the broken promise. 
On the 19th of October, 1929, just five days before the stock market crash of Black Thursday and 10 days before the second devastating crash on Black Tuesday, Scott Fitzgerald published a now-forgotten story called The Swimmers. It's about an American banker who discovers that America has corrupted itself by choosing materialism over the Enlightenment traditions of the nation's founders, a corruption that Fitzgerald emblematizes in a story about infidelity, broken promises, bad faith. There's a fascinating moment in the story when a French woman complains about American women on the Riviera. And she says, how would you place them? Great ladies, bourgeois, adventuresses, they're all the same. Look, suddenly she pointed to an American girl going into the water. That young lady may be a stenographer and yet be compelled to warp herself, dressing and acting as if she had all the money in the world. And the American says to her, in truly American style, perhaps she will have someday, someday. That's the story they are told, the French woman says. It happens to one, not to the 99. That's why all their faces over 30 are discontented and unhappy. This is the Adornian critique of the American dream as a lottery that nobody wins but everybody plays. They too use the example of the typist, but Adorno and Horkheimer didn't come up with it until the 1940s. And by the way, Fitzgerald is never credited with this idea. It's always given to Adorno and Horkheimer, but Fitzgerald got there considerably sooner. He recognized that the game was rigged 15 years before Adorno and Horkheimer. At the end of the story, the hero asks a woman a question about America. But when in a moment he left her, he knew that she could never tell him the answer to the question. She or another, Fitzgerald writes, France was a land, England was a people, but America, having about it still that quality of the idea, was harder to utter. It was the graves at Shiloh and the tired, drawn, nervous faces of its great men and the country boys dying in the Argonne for a phrase that was empty before their bodies withered. It was a willingness of the heart. Wall Street crashed 10 days later. Two years after Gadsby appeared, a reporter was sent to interview, in his words, the voice and embodiment of the jazz age, its product and its beneficiary, a popular novelist, a movie scenarist, a dweller in the gilded palaces. But the reporter found instead, to his distinct hilarity, that silly Scott Fitzgerald was, quote, forecasting doom, death, and damnation to his generation. He sounded, said the reporter, like an intellectual Samson, predicting that the Plaza Hotel's marble columns would crumble. Fitzgerald's absurd prophecy was that America would face a great national testing, a national testing in the very near future. The idea that we're the greatest people in the world because we have the most money in the world is ridiculous. Wait until this wave of prosperity is over. Wait 10 or 15 years. Wait until the next war on the Pacific or against some European combination. The next 15 years will show how much resistance there is in the American race. There has never been an American tragedy, Fitzgerald ended. There have only been great failures. It was 1927. The reporter was vastly amused. Thank you. I don't have a mic, though. No, no, just stay here. Stay here. Sarah, that was wonderful. Um, this may be tangential, but I was just thinking about Martha, Martin Luther King's yep. speech, I Have a Dream. dream. Yep. So was that a black dream, or was that an American dream? That's a very good question. I would say it's an American dream, and that's exactly what he was invoking. Because by the time he gives that speech, see, 
The thing about that phrase then is as of 1931, that phrase absolutely takes off. And one of the ways you can track this databases are, are the, the archived uh, databases that we have now are incredible things for historians because I can do targeted searches and I can see, for example, the New York Times archives goes, goes back to 1871, which is a really easy way to test the currency of a given phrase. And between 1871 and 1931, the phrase American Dream basically doesn't appear. It just doesn't really exist. 1931, it explodes. You can just track it. So you can see that suddenly it's everywhere. Um, so by the time that uh, King gives his great speech, that, that phrase has been uh, a, an important part of American popular discourse for 35 years. My math, the mathematicians in the room will need to correct my math. But, um, and so he is absolutely invoking that. That's what he's plugging into and saying there is a dream here that has been, that has been denied to an entire race. Listen, we can take one or two points. It's quite hard to see you from here, oh. but... Uh, Stand up if you want to speak. Stand up or. and be counted. <laughs> well, the integrity in your study, and I think that it embodies uh, the great spirit of many people here in terms of what they do. And so thank you for that. Oh, thank you. <laughs> Here we are. Yes, it'll be podcast. Uh, well, uh, oh yeah, they, absolutely, and uh, it will be in my book coming soon to a fine bookstore near you. Great. <laughs> <laughs> but Sarah. I, have, I just have a question about yeah, whether, yeah, uh-huh. where, what is your observation of the British dream? Mm. It's a good question. I mean, one of the, there are so many, I mean, 10 minutes on the American dream, as you know, and I was sort of like, ah, <laughs> where do I even begin? There are so many things you could say. And of course, one of the great things that I think that we need to say about the American dream is that is that because it's now it's and it's part of the reason why I did that joke about branding at the beginning is because I think that the way people think about the American dream is as if American an act of, of kind of intellectual or, or moral imperialism kind of branded hope you know and said we have some kind of uh, monopoly on hope but of course that wasn't the idea the idea was a lot less pernicious than that the original idea was simply that America would guarantee a safe space where opportunity could be pursued and in that sense, and this is something I talk about with British uh, students a lot, um, they say, well, you know, a, a very canny student asked me recently and, and said, but the thing about Gatsby is that it doesn't seem to be a book about the American dream because Gatsby died. And I said, I'm really glad you noticed that. He does end up shot dead in a swimming pool. The, the American dream is a failure, right? But what isn't a failure, it seems to me, is that America still believes at, well, as best as it can, and that was why I was talking about that it's not a reality, but believes in the principle that people ought to be able to pursue opportunity. And it is certainly the case that there are many societies that do not believe in that principle, that believe that you should be determined or are determined by the condition from which you come. And, and my opinion is that the British dream is, see, I think America has a great deal of cognitive dissonance about race, and I think Britain has a great deal of cognitive dissonance about class. And until Britain can start telling the truth about its class systems, which in my opinion it doesn't do, um, it's it's not, it's not going to be able to talk about a, a British dream properly because people are still too defined by the conditions from which they come. Brilliant. Now, yep, now um, just, just finishing, Sarah, I forgot to say that, of course, when I sent the letter to Margaret Beckett, I didn't get a reply for eight weeks. Uh, the day that, we, that Prime Minister saw Christina, we changed policy in Kabul. Eight weeks later, Margaret sent me a letter saying, Dear Derek, I don't think it's appropriate that I should meet a journalist. And, however, if you have something you could tell me about Kabul that I don't already know, please call my private secretary. She didn't even know we changed policy in Kabul. 
I'll give you that as an illustration. I've got, Derek, I'm going to just butt Sarah, do you know if the Occupy Wall Street people had read The Swimmers and had picked up that phrase about the one and the 99? I would be absolutely amazed if they had. Nobody reads that story anymore. It's, it's barely in print. It's only in one collection of Fitzgerald stories. So you have to be a, a Fitzgerald completist, really, to know about it. I'm, of course, trying to bring it back. So let's bring The Swimmers back. It's a very interesting story. I, I would be amazed if they knew it. It's an amazing... If it is Isn't amazing. it incredible? Yeah, yeah. Ten days before the Wall Street crash. Yeah. Okay. We've got to go. But yeah. thank you very much again, sir. Thank you. Thank you.